You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. There is a place where time stands still, where nature is harsh and demanding, where only the quick and the strong and the deadly can survive. This place is no place for civilized man. All you've got to do now is pass the Australian culture test. Three simple questions, three correct answers, and you go through that doorway to the greatest little country. Hi everyone, and here for Showreel. Today, two interesting snippets focusing on film with an Australian flavour. Kathy Mayer, first up. Kathy is a voice coach as well as a film producer, and when she came in to talk about Out of the Closet, Into the Streets, which was on recently at monthly screenings of the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival films at Nova, I discovered her hidden talent, voice coaching for actors. So uh, I'm, I, was, I was trained through school and through uni. I, d- I did the AMEB course for quite, quite a long time. So what, training to become what does a teacher. Oh, it's I don't it's a set of exams that you complete, so both practical and theoretical. And by the end of it you get to a sort of a certificate diploma kind of level of knowledge. Um, it's I was trained to be a, a drama teacher, and so that was it came sort of sat alongside that. But then I got distracted and went to film school. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I I got way way laid into um, filmmaking for for a long time, and then I came back to it when I um, was talking to actors in Melbourne who were going through pretty much not VCA, the big training place. They were they weren't getting any technical training in voice. It was just it was a, a big hole, and and that was that's what I was trained in. So I, I picked that up again to start working with actors in a technical sense. So and tell me what that means. So what, what were they finding that they were uh, lacking? So no one was telling them the specific skills of how to use their voice. So the, so there's different ways you can use um, You can alter your pitch, your pace, using phrasing, using volume, looking at technical breathing, how um, you how your breathing interacts with the actual production of voice in your vocal cords and the way that your body acts as a resonator. Where does the voice resonate? Does it resonate in your head? Is it resonating in your chest? How do you move that? And what emotional difference that makes or if you want to express something differently, if, you have, if you're pitching up high in your head, it's really different to rooting it right down sort of in your solar plexus. So it's about consciousness. Yes, and, to, and having like a, what I call a technical toolbox so that they know the different parts of this, so they know the difference between volume and pace, so that they know how to breathe really deeply, so that they learn to have really good breath reserves and all of that helps you be vocally confident. And the way I kind of describe it is like all of that is like the engine of a car running underneath so that when you're performing, you're at the wheel 
and the the vocal engine just ticks underneath and you can drive the performance without thinking about it. All right, so when um, old old hand actors from theatre, they would often, you know, be disparaging of uh, newer actors because they had obviously learnt these skills on the boards. Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it it was probably became unf- unfashionable. It was seen as elocution and stagey, stagey, and not necessary. Um, and you know, as we went through changes in film, you know, when you know cinema verite and um, and the, the wall sink, documentary, yeah, and kitchen sink dramas. I th- you know, maybe that kind of training might have fallen away and never come back. Well, it, it's also interesting because doing um, this kind of radio and uh, uh, times have changed a lot because there is fewer. There are fewer people who have uh, genuine working class voices getting onto the radio because people have got a certain level of diction. Uh, But it's also interesting to me because my mother was really into this and uh, she was a singer as well. So uh, we were always trained to answer the telephone even below 10 (laughs) in a proper manner. Thank you very much. And... um, even today, I find it really uh, disturbing when people don't actually finish the ends of their words. Yeah, you know, because that's something that people are obviously not very conscious of. No, people don't think about it at at all um, in day to day life. But also, but in terms of like a technically, in terms of performances, I think people forget that on screen you're. Um, you're acting, you know, in a close-up or a mid-shot. So, so much of that performance is voice. Um, and um, even, you know, even in probably particularly in like serial dramas, um, you're, that stuff's shot really close and you need, you know, you need to have your voice as an instrument to um, be able to tune your performance. So if they hadn't previously been aware of those skills, were they not able to replay the same voice that they decided to use in that role? Were they finding that difficult? It was just sort of being ca- speaking casually with actors and they, were just, they just weren't having any voice training. There would be physical training and, there, of course, there would be craft training. But um, outside of, say, VCA, there's very little voice training that would go- could take part in if you go do an acting course somewhere. Well, it's cause interesting because the voice is really emotional and this is one of the reasons why I like radio, for mm. example, because – and the business about pacing. You can make people feel things by the way you say mm. it. Yeah, oh, just just dropping your voice, you know, really going – being able, just going really quiet is one of the biggest – power moves you can make because you make somebody you have to pull they have to pull into you so you can hear them so getting people to think about that and that it's not all big shouty stuff all the time 
that uh, small small voice and you um, you know you look at some amazing performances a lot often they're really quiet yeah 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 that's right um, are there specific exercises you get people to do because oh, I can remember but we used to do things like beep 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 oh, noises oh, tons yes yeah. it's still it's exercise based so um, yeah 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 and it's not it's different from the actor needing to learn another uh, accent. It's it's separate. It's separate from accent. So accents are a skill within itself. Yeah. So you don't do that. I can, but oh. I'm but I'm more I'm I'm more. But but these days there are people who will absolutely spe- specialise in particular accents because. You can do it over Zoom if you want. A, you know, if you want a Cali- you know, particularly going to America, if you want a Californian American accent, you will find somebody in LA who will specifically teach you that accent. Um, and same with you know London. But so I can do it, but there are probably people who are more specialised than I. Um, I'm yeah, I'm more about the general. Vocal fitness, I guess, is the way, the way I describe it, that can be missing from acting work and acting training currently. Um, so there's plenty of voice teachers out there, but I'm unusual in, in that I'm technically trained. And so what I do is get into the nitty-gritty of things. And I sort of delve down in a way that they do in the big drama schools. I don't know if you've heard of someone called Cicely Berry? No, no. So she, she's very famous in the in the voice world. So um, I I take um, what's you know Cicely Berry has taught been teaching people for years, and I'm trying to apply that in a modern context and teach contemporary actors about that level of deep deep technical training. Command, yeah, command. And as we were talking before, just about. Uh, People obviously had an attitude towards this in previous times because it was about presenting as, as a particular class of individual. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, Even in Australia, which we you know we have this classless society. Well, interestingly, so um, there is um, uh, the history of voice in Australia. So if you go back to the, the way the news was read early. On people would have read it. So the the classic English accents called received pronunciation, and it was expected that Australian news readers use received pronunciation, so that the very specific rounded vowels and clipped vowels, and that distinctive English voice was mandatory on Australian radio for, for many years. To yeah, be yeah. an announcer, yeah. you would have had to have known what received pronunciation was. You'd also you, have, you'd have to be to male. Use, you'd have to be male and you'd have to use it and you wouldn't, you wouldn't get a job without it. So relatively speaking, a, vo- a contemporary voices are a, are a newish thing. Oh yeah, on, no, on, it's on a, so fantastic. Australian. I mean, this is why community radio was such such a revolution. Extraordinary. You would, you would, it, it is. You wouldn't have heard a Greek accent no. or an Italian accent, let alone an Asian one. Absolutely, literally unheard of because there was no one on the ABC who was allowed to speak that way. And I, I'm actually quite fascinated with the fact that there are such a lot of different accents in Australia. I mean, we're in white Australia. It's a, 
it is actually there's quite a lot. Oh yes, an Adelaide accents is is very different to a Melbourne one. Yeah, and a, a Perth, Perth one. Yeah, 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 and you can uh, you can f- feel the underwear of of yes. the pa- past in yes. people's uh, language. Yes, yeah, uh, um, sort of the is there's. Tw- Twangs of you know Irish pronunciation in in communities that you can you can hear where you know there would have been a big you know Irish in particular. In I'll tell you something yeah. interesting because I used to do um, uh, reporting for a little paper down in Warrnambool, which is very uh, Irish. Sometimes uh, when I used to do, I used to uh, write it out literally what I'd actually <laughs> got from people and. Um, some of the constructions of their sentences are incredibly Irish. Yeah. Really fascinating yeah. to me. Yeah. That's a that's another <laughs> issue altogether. Yeah. But we are we're very we you, you don't think of it but the, but the Australian accent really is as you're right quite regional. Yeah, quite regional. Oh, that's fascinating. So that what a great job. Yeah. How, how fascinating. Yeah. Love yeah. it. Lucky. Yeah. Oh, I'm planning on doing running some workshops um on uh, two things in particular, audition preparation and deep connection, the deep connection, connecting deeply between the voice and the text. How do you make that connection? Oh, that's really interesting. So that it actually hums. Yes. Okay. You're, that you're um, uh, f- establishing an emotional connection between you, your voice and the words. I'm at flexible, if you Google flexible voice, you'll find me. And um, or you can reach me at um, it's uh, flexible voice at iprimates.com.au. 3CR's annual Radiothon fundraiser launches in June, and this year we're asking you to be part of community-powered radio. It's only with your support that we're able to be independent, community-controlled, and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon powers the station to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference, and all donations over $2 are tax-deductible. 3CR Radiothon. Show your support during June 2021. 3CR Community Powered Radio. You're with Annie on Showreel. Now we're going in a completely different direction. This is a small excerpt from a Melbourne International Documentary Film Festival uh, that happened earlier in the year. It is part of a much longer chat with documentary filmmaker Alex Gibney. MIDFF website is a fantastic resource for people who make and watch documentaries. They have monthly screenings at Nova in, in Carlton, COVID permitting, and a yearly event, which this year took people all over the world. It was a truly extraordinary collection of filmmakers and the processes they engage in. So here is a small part of a conversation with Alex Gibney talking a little about his COVID film called Totally Under Control and his film about the Enron scandal, Enron, the smartest guys in the room. Um, Alex, I guess let's start by talking about Totally Under Control because last year shocked most of us, but then you managed to surprise the world by just dropping a film, one that we expected, Agents of Chaos, I think, and one we didn't expect, Totally Under Control. So it was a big year for you. It was a big year. Uh, there was a lot going on. And and by all rights, I had no business doing Totally Under Control because I was very busy doing a 
two-part, four-hour special, <laughs> Agents of Chaos, all about the Russian interference in 2016. And that was a globe-girdling project that, it, that had gone on for about four years and, you know, was shooting in Russia and uh, Ukraine and, uh, you know, uh, London and, and all over the state. So I had no business doing it, but in March and April, I was so infuriated at the uh, U.S. federal response to the coronavirus that, uh, you know, I, I thought, well, you know, I, I'm determined to make a film about it and determined to make a film about it during the pandemic and also determined in this case, um, which is not always the right thing to do, but in this case, I felt it was really important that it be released in October before the American elections in, in early November, mm -hmm. um, because I felt in this case, a choice for president was a kind of existential choice. And so, you know, I wanted to convey uh, an impression to millions of people about, you know, what had happened. And, and, and so that's what we did. And that anger and that sort of compilation that you talk about, did that come from watching it unfold sort of on, on the news or were you personally touched by the, by the pandemic? Well, I live in, I mean, I have an office in New York and I live in New mm -hmm. Jersey. Both those States were, um, in the middle of the first wave of the pandemic. I mean, they, New York in particular was hit very hard early on. And, you know, the, the medical system was about to be overwhelmed. So, you know, we felt it locally. And I also had cameras, uh, you know, I was producing a film where we had cameras in another, um, in a hospital that was reckoning with that almost from, from from day one and, and so I was seeing these images and I had friends who were dying I, I had a friend who died uh, early on from COVID another friend uh, from Northern Ireland who uh, had come over for St. Patrick's Day caught it uh, got it bad and was on a ventilator for two and a half weeks and miraculously did survive so it was personal to me I think um, and I was following it very rigorously and also reaching out to a lot of people and so in April, I decided to raise the money, and then I, I joined forces with two extraordinary women, Ophelia Harutunian and Suzanne Hillinger, and starting on May 1st, we embarked on trying to get something done in time, which was going to mean shooting and editing all at the same time, and in some cases, inventing a brand new camera called the COVID cam mm -hmm. that could be operated. Um, I mean, we didn't really want to use Zoom because we felt that the image quality was too rugged and, and also caused all sorts of problems in post. But we came up with a camera that you could literally deliver to someone's door, um, turn it on outside, it hook up to their internet, and then we could control the f-stop and the focus remotely. Um, and, um, you know, if people didn't want to put themselves into another situation, which is sort of... Um, uh, kind of Airbnb setup that we would control and they didn't want any human contact. We had, had the perfect solution. So it was complicated. It was difficult, but we got it done. Mm -hmm. I'm sitting here right now, a little paranoid that my cat's going to jump through frame any second and sort of demand breakfast. Did you get a lot of that? Like with people that you were filming on with sort of, I don't know, in, insight into their kind of intimate domestic. Well, there was one woman who was very interesting woman, a, a mathematical modeler who, who, who understands how to model these viruses mm -hmm. and their spread her house is surrounded by birds. Um, so there was a lot of flying. There was a lot of fluttering of wings. Uh, no cats. No cats. Luckily. Well, we might have one today. Who knows? Um, Alex, 
you've kind of given me, I guess, the sense of how you experienced um, uh, COVID sort of personally in in a, and, and in, through the news. But is that how you experience, I guess, news and events? Do you do you watch stuff and you sort of like you get motivated? Whereas I sort of tend to doom scroll and get a bit anxious. I imagine you sitting there going, "That's a story. That's a story. That's a story," and then sort of acting on it. Look, I'm human. I do a little bit of both, but I am <laughs> looking at things and thinking, is that a story? Is that not a story? I mean, just because it's in the news, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a worthy story for a documentary, in my view. But <clears throat> very often I've gone into stories that I felt were misunderstood at the time um, and and go in and try to understand them in a slightly different way. So, you know, I, I did a film called Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room. And when I first started that film, people said, well, there's been a lot of news about it. You know, what more is there to say? Well, in point of fact, there was a lot more because people had kind of missed the real story. And they very often they missed the human story. And also, it's funny the way things work in our 24-7 um, media landscape. We coalesce very quickly on narratives that we think are the right ones. And they tend often not to be right. Uh, things tend to be either a little bit more complex or sometimes simpler than than they initially appear. But um, and and so that that often provides an opportunity to go in and and investigate. And of course, sometimes you're you're observing in real time, and mm -hmm. you know, to some extent, as we were doing in totally under control. But <clears throat> um, I find that it's often going in after the fact and seeing stuff that wasn't evident initially. So do you, I guess it sounds like it's a bit of a mix of both, but do you have a point of view and you go in chasing that or do you just kind of sniff something and then go in and the point of view forms during the process? I, I sometimes have a hypothesis, mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, I've learned over time that you have to be willing to recognise when that hypothesis is just dead wrong. So I think it's useful to uh, have a point of view either at the beginning or the end of a project. But as my, uh, one of my um, heroes, Marcel Ophuls once said, you know, I always have a point of view. The trick is showing how hard it is to come to that point of view. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I, I think it's useful to have a point of view because it focuses your mind, but you have to be open that you're wrong, dead wrong. Um, and in the case of some films, it went 180 degrees. So I guess what you were saying about people misunderstanding what the story is about, and you mentioned Enron there, do you think that there was a lack of understanding of, of human nature in that story and, and, and the impact that human nature would have on, I guess, the outcome of that, of that particular series of events? Yes. I, I think that people were focused too much in some ways on the numbers. And also, it became a kind of easy vilification of the people at the center of the crime. And there was a crime and there were criminals. <clears throat> but I think if you if you dig deeper, there's a more interesting story there that has a much more longer lasting um, and important impact. And that's the story of a corporate culture and how things can evolve over time, particularly when certain goals are set and when people feel that they have a noble mission. And then when that noble mission begins to go awry, instead of accepting that fact, you try to create uh, a fictional realm uh, in which uh, that mission is still being accomplished, even though it's not. 
that's fraud, of course, but but that's very much of a human um, failing that we all share, but it can be magnified in circumstances like Enron. So I can remember, you know, my distributors initially were very much like make more ruthless fun. Don't give shading to the people at the center of Enron because we all hate them. So just mock them. Well, you know, that would have been easy to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I think that would have missed the point. It would have missed the point of how a crime like that happens. And a crime like that happens incrementally. And I talked to a lot of people at Enron, some who were in the film and some were not. And they all talked about those moments where they thought things were not quite right and they just kind of went along. And then they went along again and again and again. And pretty soon they realized they had crossed their ethical line a long time ago. But that's a much more interesting uh, dynamic, I think, to make a film about than a few people who are just bad. I mean, that's the bad apples theory of history, which I don't endorse at all, Mm -hmm. because I think it lets all of us off the hook and very often misunderstands the way these crimes work. And I think, too, that, like, you know, that is such a, I guess, a universal human experience that we have kind of like a cliched saying about it, that idea of, you know, the frog in boiling water that doesn't realise it's being boiled until... That's right. So, you know, like it's it, the world over, it's a human experience by whereby, you know, people sort of let things slide and sort of break bad, I guess, and, well, <laughs> you know, continue down the path. In the case of the Enron, in the case of Enron, you had the, the frog in boiling water being boiled by the frogs themselves. So. <laughs> yeah. And I guess you just you described it beautifully a moment ago when you were saying, you know, it's a noble it's a noble mission with with misunderstood kind of outcomes or something similar that there's a nobility at the centre of it. Called noble cause corruption. Sorry to say that again. Police have a phrase for it. It's called noble cause corruption, and that that is they use it in the context of the cop who's going after a murderer, say, and can't get him for the murder, so they start planting drugs on him. And the right. next thing you know, they, they make snap decisions about who's a good guy and who's a bad guy. And before you know it, that cop is planting drugs on everyone and thinking that he or she is doing the right thing mm-hmm. because they're getting bad guys off the street. But they've crossed a, a moral line a long time ago and they've become corrupted. What was noble about the Enron cause, though? Wasn't that about making money from the, the get-go? Well, it sure was about making money, but um, it, it may not have been noble to us in the sense it was just about making money. But I think that they had a vision of what was wrong with the economy and they were practicing, particularly Jeff Skilling. I think Ken Lay was more of a venal character who just wanted to make money no matter how. But he was sort of the jolly guy who convinced everybody he was a nice guy. And many people liked him. Many people thought he was a nice guy. But Jeff Skilling had a kind of ideological mission. And that was to show that the practice of brutal free enterprise un checked by any kind of government regulation would lead to a magnificent world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, in that context, you know, he, he imagined that his schemes at Enron would um, be good for people. I mean, he wasn't doing it. He wasn't doing it like Bernie Madoff just to scam people so he could personally make money. I think there really was a mission for him. Of course, it was a mission, not so coincidentally, which caused him to make bu- buckets of money. <laughs> But um, but I think, you know, there's a famous saying that uh, economic actors aren't rational, they're rationalizers. And so Jeff Skilling was rationalizing 
um, his behavior, but he felt he had a mission. And that's what allowed him, I think, to be as corrupt as he ultimately became. Even today, Jeff Skilling believes that he was fundamentally innocent. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our Radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone, and in the station to help keep us going for another year. Independent community media is more important than ever, and we need your support to power community radio. The 3CR Radiothon kicks off in June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au, call the station on 039419-8377 or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during business hours. 3CR Community Powered Radio. That's it for Showreel this week. Let's hope COVID settles. Talk to you next week. Listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.